Welcome to the five things this week in social. Each week we explain the five most talked about stories from the social sphere. And this week we have Daniel Avon from Gray's data strategy team and Stephanie Thule from the social team at Tank New York. Daniel, hello. Hello, Joey. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Uh, Last week on the show, we talked a little bit about Spotify Wrapped, and I just wanted to take this opportunity to ask you if you had any surprises or anything fun that you wanted to share from your Spotify Wrapped. Um, I forget exactly how it termed it, um, but I'm a discoverer, and then I become super loyal to a given artist. So my top five artists are pretty much singularly the only artists I listen to the entire year. So there were no surprises, um, but it was funny to see how they termed the uh, the genres. There's the Portuguese artist I like, and he was just called Portuguese indie music, which is the most uninspired thing I've ever heard. But I felt, you know, I felt good about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll get him into a better uh, genre for sure. And Stephanie, hello. Hello. Welcome back. So same question for you. Any any surprises in your rap? Did it represent you? I felt like mine represented me. All the details don't need to be public, but I, I track with Daniel's pattern of that global music showing up. I was shocked to see my third biggest genre was French pop, but I recommend it. Wow. I love that. That's so great. Well, I'm Joey Scarillo, and I did my Pocket Cast Podcast of the Year review because we talked about my Spotify last week. And Today Explained was my most listened to podcast. So shout out to the awesome team over there at Vox. Okay, now back to this podcast. First up, Daniel will tell us about TikTok's growing national security risks. Then Stephanie poses the question, what's the next Twitter? Daniel dives into Instagram and shadow banning. Stephanie tells us about Meta's new art project. And finally, Daniel will give us the really real on all the AI images we've been seeing on social. All right, let's get into it, gang. Daniel, you're up first. Tell us about TikTok and their growing national security risks. So this is actually a continuation of a story that's been going on for quite a while since the previous administration. So U.S. government is talking with TikTok, and this conversation is dragging amid national security concerns over the app itself. So as of yet, there have been no new requests made of TikTok for additional information and so forth. But the core concern lies around a few key things, where and how TikTok stores its data and who has access to it and what it consists of, the inner workings of its algorithm, you know, that sweet sauce, the suggestion of all the the videos that keep us engaged on the platform, and the ability for TikTok and its algorithm to deliver propaganda to U.S. users. It is, of course, not TikTok itself the U.S. is concerned about, but rather China and the Chinese government and what they could do with both American user information and the ability to reach and communicate to them. Rhetoric As I mentioned, with the previous administration, it's mostly coming from the Republican side of things, is calling for a ban altogether of the app, whereas the Biden administration is trying to make it work. TikTok is already in the works of consolidating all the U.S. data to Oracle cloud servers that are located in the U.S. and has safeguards in place to make sure it's only accessible to their U.S. entity. So the first side of things that I mentioned, they're on board with that and making it work. It's just the algorithm and I guess the acquiescing of the concern that they may use the app to deliver propaganda to Americans. This is interesting because 
TikTok is the first major social media platform to not come from the US. So a lot more is being asked of them than may have been asked of social media companies in the US in the past. And we haven't seen the same thing, to my knowledge, with Be Real, which is a French-based company. Obviously, we know that Social media can be leveraged for great influence to good and bad ends, thinking of Cambridge Analytica and other legal battles that Facebook has dealt with over the years among other social players. But this is this is a different tune, primarily because, again, this is a Chinese company and there are concerns about what that implies for national security, what the Chinese government may leverage with the app to Americans. There's a lot of money at play here. A lot of money has been invested from brands and TikTok into the US over the past few years. And the Biden administration is pretty motivated to make it work. So I don't feel that TikTok is going away anytime soon. This implies that anything major is going to change or happen. But any question marks, negative sentiment may give some brands and boards of brands pause before investing in the platform. And that totally makes sense. But we shouldn't anticipate any answers on this until after the end of the year. They anticipated initially for those answers to come end of year, but that doesn't seem to be the case. That's such a really interesting point that you brought up and one that I, for some reason, just hadn't thought of specifically that TikTok is the first major platform created outside the U.S. So look, we're not a podcast that talks about foreign policy or global business, but I am curious, what is our business? Stephanie, how do you think brands should engage with TikTok moving forward? Should they heed caution or business as usual? I don't see the need for too much more caution than we've already had at this time with TikTok. They made huge steps toward brand safety in the last year. And as brand marketers, I think we're all feeling better on the platform. As people, it's always good to be aware of what's on there. But as marketers, I feel pretty safe that TikTok's also not going away soon. Yeah. And I know if they ever do reveal how the algorithm works, I think there's going to be a lot of interested parties. I myself am just so curious how they know exactly what I want to see all the time. All right. So, Stephanie, let's jump into Twitter, but more so the new versions of Twitter, these new platforms that have come out. So what's next? Tell us about it. The recent takeover of Twitter has us all wondering where to go. Should the platform go in flames? We are all asking ourselves, is there really a viable alternative to Twitter yet? So with that moment hot, developers are racing to build one with their own flavor. Meanwhile, there are some platforms already up and running that have seen a quick influx of interest. Let's visit the main platform. There's the Narwhal Project, which is aiming to provide a space where users with different viewpoints can also have online discussions. It interestingly has a small but noteworthy group of leaders, including the CEO of The Atlantic and a former VP of engineering at Twitter. Another budding platform we're seeing is Post, which is already letting in tens of thousands of early users. This service looks a lot like Twitter, but it intends to stand apart with what they're calling rigorous content moderation and a focus on the distribution of premium news. The biggest name so far in the Twitter replacement game is Mastodon, but it's not ready yet. They say it will feel a lot like Twitter while putting users in charge to create their own spaces. I like that within this one, you can really lean into your interests. And while those apps have looked to generally reimagine Twitter, There's also Hive, which you can use pretty intuitively based on your experience on Twitter because it feels of these the most like the OG platform. I see perks and flaws within each of these, but they all need time to mature and iron out their experience. There is one big 
obvious problem for all of these services, and that's Twitter. While the general public might put up with an alternative platform's flaws, the truth is that Twitter hasn't crashed and burned completely yet. You can still use it today, and most of your friends will probably still be on it. Yeah, I feel like if Twitter was going to crash and burn, it would have been the weekend when everyone was changing their name to Elon Musk. But with all these new platforms that have come up, quite a bit of social discourse and conversation around, you know, at least the proverbial halls of gray. So Daniel, with all these platforms, Hive, Mastodon, and all the others, which do you think will be the most appealing to current Twitter users? So I am not super versed in these platforms because I shamelessly am staying on Twitter until it crashes and burns, as Stephanie is saying. Going, going down, down with the ship. With the ship, Dido vibes. But I will say of the ones that she described and what the little I've read about some of them, Hive feels to be... It, it's, it's akin to the experience. It feels to be kind of the better place to be. The further that you move from that and the further that the user experience is distanced from like the ease and findability, discoverability that there is on Twitter, the harder it is to convince people en masse to go there. I read a little bit about Mastodon. They had like a million users come within the past like few weeks or so. But the platform itself is super decentralized, has multiple websites. It just is not as intuitive and as focused as a platform like a Twitter is. So the platform to win is the one that, for better or worse, leans more into the traditional social tropes that we've come to love and appreciate of the platforms that are biggest today. Stephanie, which platform do you think will have the most appeal for brands? Right now, it's the platforms that are existing and killing it rather than these. I think that this is just going to push people more towards TikTok, Be Real, and those platforms will start engaging that kind of current feed of content that Twitter was recently doing. Of these, it seems like Mastodon has the most potential. That's interesting. I've only so far played around with Hive, but I can't seem to figure out how to find friends on there. So sitting at a very low follower count, but it's fine. I don't interact with it too much. All right, friends, let's jump over to Instagram now and talk about how Instagram is to show professional accounts if they've been shadow banned. That sounds so serious, Daniel. Tell us about it. It is serious business. And it is, funnily enough, because of my love-hate relationship with Bethany Frankel, one of my favorite topics, because she has in the past claimed that she's been shadow banned for certain content. So let's talk about the instance on Instagram, because I believe she was speaking to TikTok at the time. While Instagram is not calling it by its name, so in all of their communications, they're not calling it shadow banning, they have recently added a new component to the account status section of the app. So this part of the professional user experience uh, was introduced in October of 2021, that being the account status section. But this is a new component to it where professional users can see if for any reason their content is not being recommended to other users on Reels, Explore, or Feed recommendations. So a limited set of places where your content can be discovered. They're telling you whether or not something is getting in the way of you showing up there. And as I mentioned, does not extend to the search bar or suggested accounts module. I think that there's a little bit more at play there. Like if you have a name that appears to be inappropriate, they will pull you from being discoverable in the search bar and so forth. So this is really more about the content that you are actively putting out. It 
empowers creators to remedy anything that may prevent may be preventing them from reaching new followers by discovery or recommendation features on the app. This is the lifeblood of budding brands and creators. So it's really important that they show up in these spaces. And so this is a great tool that Instagram is giving to users. However, if they don't feel they need to remedy something, so they may contest some of the content that is being flagged and that is taking them out of the system, they're also empowered to request an appeal of the content in question. I find this topic super interesting because before this level of transparency, there was a lot of conspiracy thrown around about, oh, have I been shadow banned or am I just really bad at this or whatever the case may be. This adds a layer of transparency that creators heretofore have not had access to. And it gives them an opportunity to better succeed on the platform. It also has a smaller side to things where it's pushing, nudging creators to better follow community guidelines and whatever else may be holding them back from succeeding on the platform. This ideally leads to more brand safety and a safer platform altogether. That's not to say there aren't issues of this. There are some inherent biases at play in what content can and cannot get you shadow banned. I think of a lot of the queer people that I follow and things that appear to be inappropriate, but within the queer community may not. But just given the broader community guidelines, don't allow for it to show up. So broadly speaking, this is a win. It gives transparency. It enables people to remedy things. But there are some some issues still to, to work out within the space. For brands and creators that feel like your account isn't doing well for one reason or another, you can at least rule this component of it out. So that is a good thing. It doesn't help you solve for the other sides of things. And that's why you work with people like us at Gray and other advertising and social agencies to not only make sure that your content is up to snuff, but it is also doing well. So all in, we're solving for one side of the equation. And I think that is a good win for this week. Yeah, it sounds like a good win. And you know, it's always nice when we get a video from our friend Adam Masseri, who announced this update. So I'm just curious, Steph, do you think that this feature is going to create more problems? Or do you think it'll solve more problems? Meaning, will this give users whose content gets banned to then use the platform to complain about it? I think it would have if they had added this feature without the option to appeal it. TikTok came out as, you know, the biggest competitor a couple years ago to Meta. And they said, we are a creator first platform. I think this is part of Meta's response to ensure that creators, especially on the smaller side, have some kind of lifeline to the platform. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's get into our fourth thing for the day. This should be a fun one. Steph, tell us about Meta's new art project. So we both know Meta's vision. It has been that the next generation of art, culture, and social interaction will be expressed through mediums that blend the physical and digital worlds, also known as mixed reality. Meta has been looking to better highlight the rising creative opportunities within its metaverse push. It's not something people are really latching onto and seeing as a main feature. So they've recently activated new art installations, which use that mixed reality elements. The first to launch was at this year's Miami Art Week. They called it the Meta House, and it showcased mixed reality experiences with a VR gallery, interactive AR murals, live performances by artists like Doja Cat, and installations by emerging artists. Investing in and showcasing emerging artists, I see as a key part of Meta's push here. They're collaborating with voices across diverse communities to influence how they build an equitable metaverse. They say that they're attempting to improve their products to advance authentic expression, connection, and opportunities to monetize creativity. Meta is also looking towards Instagram with this push. 
Instagram is launching a new exhibition to showcase the work of Toma Amaya, which will also incorporate augmented reality elements. His exhibit, Embracing Our Sovereignty, offers a glimpse into the lives of his indigenous family, friends, and collaborators in a medium that is new to him. This is the right angle for Meta to pursue to showcase their metaverse. It's all about freedom and creativity. And as we saw earlier, Twitter alternatives are also being driven by that human insight. This is a really interesting approach for Meta to take, right? Coming at it from the art scene. I'm curious, Daniel, do you think this is finally the move, finally the thing that's going to get the masses to the metaverse? I'm not Nostradamus. Uh, but I don't think that this is the singular thing that's going to bring the masses to the metaverse. However, um, as Steph was saying, it's a really good and interesting angle. You think of the like the old art institutions and the old art world has been very exclusionary to diverse voices and has been very like Eurocentric or classical art and so forth. This is a really smart move in a few ways. It's a direct, indirect signal that this new metaverse space is inclusive and is actually going to lift up the voices that historical art worlds have silenced. And in so working with these types of artists has the potential to create smaller but very passionate and strong communities within the platform. So I think it's all in all a net good. Is this going to make waves? Probably not, but it is a stepping stone in the right direction from my perspective and just creates another use case for the platform. Whereas in the past, you've kind of seen it as like gaming or maybe transactional. They're creating new instances and reasons for people to come, which is all in a good thing. But again, not Nostradamus. It's not the end-all be-all that's going to bring people over, in my opinion. No, but it is interesting to keep an eye on and definitely awesome that Meta is going at artists who typically aren't shown in galleries in the real world or have it who have a big voice in the art world. So this, I think this is great. I think this will be really impactful. All right, so let's take a slight shift. We're going to stick sort of with the art conversation. Daniel, tell us about What's the deal with all these AI images we've been seeing on social lately? If you've been anywhere near a social platform or the fallout of a social platform in the past week or so, you will no doubt have seen the outputs of the latest craze to take the world by storm, Lenza. Lenza is an app that for the uh, reasonable apparent price of $3.99, and this is on the low introductory end, you can always pay more for more. It allows you to make AI-generated portraits of yourself by providing your own inputs, which consists of 10 to 20 selfies of varying backgrounds and facial expressions. The app itself has actually been around for quite a few years, since 2018. But this new capability called Magic Avatars has recently rolled out. And since its rollout has generated, at least at the reporting um, that I'm referencing, 700,000 downloads of the app. So this is only within the past week or so. On this podcast, we've discussed a lot of AI stuff. This is kind of a, a topic that's happening a lot this year in different capacities. This solution is very similar to what we've seen. But this is a particular instance where the AI-generated art has garnered a lot of attention from creators, which is something that I don't think that we've spoken about a lot. In the article that I read, and also as I've seen from creators on my feed, there's a lot of kind of questioning of where this art is sourcing from. And one of the things that they're referencing is blurry or blurred out signatures on the generated images from the original artist. So it's 
apparent that the platform is trying to remove the fact that these images are sourced from um, from artists by blurring out a signature. But in fact, you can't remove all of the details. And so it's becoming apparent to these artists that their work is being sourced. Why is that? The database on which this app is trained and works on is sourcing from artists who are not being compensated for their work to be there. It also uses your images and trains the images that you input into the platform. So essentially, you are aiding in its ability to perform better, which is a good thing. But you're also you are also agreeing to your content living within this AI system to train for future images. It runs on stable diffusion, uh, which is itself an open source AI image generator that also has some kind of questionable data set that it's operating off of in that it's sourcing from other artists that may or may not be getting compensated for their images to be there, but you're paying a convenience fee to Lenza for this. Another tweet from the article I read referenced how this AI has just as many biases as the art that it's sourcing from. So if you are of a particular background, that art may reflect in a certain way. So the particular example from this tweet was East Asian faces and bodies being hypersexualized within within art. So that's kind of what that individual was seeing as a result of, of her input. So all of this to say is it's great that the world of AI images is being made available to masses, whereas like the dollies and so forth were only for celebrities and individuals of note. This is democratizing it. But there's still the broader question of art, art crediting, who's getting paid for the art, and the biases that are inherent in work that is generated from humans. So this is a very new trend. I'm assuming a lot of brands have already latched onto this. We've seen a lot of creators do this. I would tread with a bit of caution if you haven't yet. Just knowing all of these conversations that are happening with creators, it's a small but mighty conversation. But there are some implications and could be some some negative comments made about your brand if there's work that's being sourced from somebody else. I'm being super cautious. I think by and large, there's not going to be a lot of fallout for engaging with this. But it just kind of goes after that broader question of who's getting paid for the work? What is all of this AI stuff? It's actually sourcing from real human work. So somebody should ideally be getting compensated for that if their work is being leveraged in in the frame. Yeah, and it makes you wonder too where the money that people are paying, the $3.99 or whatever you said it is, where that's going, right? I'm curious, have either of you AI imaged yourself yet, Daniel? No. I. This also makes me think of the... I forget the name of the app, the Russian app that made you look older and younger. And there were so many security concerns over it. And I was just like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy into this because A, I have a few pictures of myself. I don't love to take tons of pictures of myself and they're plenty fine. (laughs) I don't need more. Um, But yeah, I'm not, I'm not dying to have some, my personal images included in a larger AI system. Yeah. Stephanie, how about you? I have not. FaceApp's exactly what I saw this being the evolution from. It just keeps kind of getting more dangerous, but this time for people's work rather than personal images, or maybe it's really both here. So I think we should be very cautious. And as this progresses, structure should be set up to find a way to compensate who these AI machines are drawing from. Yeah, I agree. I also haven't done it. I probably will not. I don't see the artistic appeal of doing some paying for something that you could just throw a filter uh, over your face, maybe in Photoshop. But it is interesting. And this is definitely a phenomenon that is worth keeping an eye on or an AI on. 
All right, friends, that does it for us this week. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, or just send us a thing that you want us to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank Daniel and Stephanie for joining us. Please do it again soon. And as always, I want to thank Danielle Hunt, Samantha Geller, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew at Gramercy. Park Studios behind the scenes. And finally, thank you, listener. We'll be back next week for our last five things of 2022 before we take some time off for the holidays and come back in January ready for more things. Next week will be a special end of year and look ahead episode. So in the meantime, as always, be social. The five things are written and researched by the social and connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. <laughs>